would like to do is um, just talk for about 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes on this notion of jouissance and of course then open it up to the wider kind of conversation. Um, I thought I would particularly talk about three types of jouissance or three ways that jouissance makes its appearance in our lives because this might, um, this was helpful to me to be honest thinking about um, uh, how jouissance um, or enjoyment um, uh, manifests itself in religious life. So I'm going to see if I can make some connections there. Um, first thing to say, I suppose, is jouissance is obviously a French word and it kind of is translated as enjoyment, but it's often left untranslated to kind of like signify that it's a technical term. So we're talking about a form of enjoyment um, and psychoanalysis. Um, it's enjoyment is central to psychoanalytic theory. Okay? What, may, what do we enjoy? And not just a, an everyday enjoyment. That's why, again, it's called jouissance. Like uh, we have everyday desires to sit by the beach and relax, enjoy our lives, have kind of peace and calm. That's not really what jouissance is. Jouissance is that particular type of pleasure that is simultaneously painful. It's the pleasure of smoking whenever you know it's killing you or having a burger when you know it's bad for you. Now, that doesn't mean you're always smoking because of that, but there's certain transgressive acts. It's doing things like gambling that whenever we don't have the money to gamble or it's whenever having an affair when we know this could destroy our relationship. It's all of that type of um, enjoyment that we experience in our lives, which is excessive. You could call it non-utilitarian in that it's damaging to us or it can be damaging to us. And uh, that of course is a really interesting subject, right? What is jouissance? What is this enjoyment? How can this be good? Should we try to get rid of it entirely? Um, or can we live with it? Is it what gives life meaning? So very quickly, I'll just use the example of um, the pleasure principle and the reality principle, right? These are two concepts that Freud uses um, where he talks about the pleasure principle is basically when I want certain things that I will find pleasurable. So the pleasure principle is, you could call it utilitarianism, is there are certain things I want because they're desirous to me. And the reality principle is just what gets in the way of things, right? Whenever I want to eat whatever I want, reality doesn't allow me. If I'm a child, my parents won't let me eat everything that I want. Or if I want to climb trees, my body won't let me climb the trees because if I'm a child, or if I'm young and I want to win all of the games that I play, uh, reality says that that's impossible because my friends want to win um, and they kind of come up against that desire. So pleasure principle is what we would like and reality principle is gets in the way. Now, one of the things Freud draws out is the extent to which for many of us, um, it's precisely the reality principle that actually inflames desire. So if we wanted to win all of the games we played, if you got rid of the reality principle and the child just won every game, and I'm sure there's families where you do that. I mean, you let the child win everything. Um, there's a certain boringness would arise from that. So weirdly, the, the reality principle inflames the pleasure principle. And to a certain extent, there are times when this inflaming um, is very excessive. And the very thing that's impossible for us becomes special, sacred, something really, really desirable. So that's a way to begin to think about jouissance is jouissance could be seen as this excessive pleasure that has a type of impossibility built into it. It's something kind of impossible. Now, I'll, I'm going to outline three forms of it. The first one, I want to talk about the jouissance of wholeness. And this is um, something that we see when we're very young called the mirror phase, where often a child will be fascinated with their mirror image, right? There's, a, there's an enjoyment and a fascination with the, the image of ourselves. Um, you could call this kind of a narcissistic moment in the sense of narcissists looking at the into the pond, seeing the image and becoming transfixed by that image. Um, there is obviously when we're young, our parents 
hopefully <laughs> are telling us that we're beautiful and clever and smart and you know all of those kind of things and often will point in the mirror and say that's you you're you're looking how amazing you are or in the mirror of your brother or your sister about you're just like your brother you're just like your sister and you begin to get what's called an ideal ego you begin to develop a sense of you that is strong and secure and and, and powerful and that can be a very fascinating image and there's a type of jouissance an excessive pleasure that we get from this desire for this ideal however in a nutshell um we can never fully get that because it's external to us it's 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 kind of an object external to us that we identify with so there's always these parts of us that will then condemn us uh say you know so those people who perhaps really try to live into an ideal will often have a very punitive superego there'll be points whenever they'll feel this real condemnation that they're not as good as they can be they're not achieving what they can achieve they're letting themselves down whatever so there's this kind of desire for wholeness but that has this super ego uh for kind of a neurotic super ego kind of um response uh, even if you drink alcohol and you get drunk and you feel amazing and you have a great time, the next day you can feel so anxious and, oh, I said the wrong thing, I did the wrong thing. You have this, this almost this punitive response the next day to, to this kind of like <clears throat> image that you were portraying the night before, feeling very confident, feeling very secure, and it bites you in the ass, right? So there is jouissance of the wholeness. Um, and I think a lot of some sometimes religion can give that where you you convert and you have this sense of you can you can be born again and be this new type of person and you can get rid of the the lack and you can kind of like you know I had that when I was seventeen I think there was a real powerful experience of of uh, a real enjoyment of of being whole or the possibility of that the possibility of starting again getting rid of all of the bad stuff in the past and you know kind of being this ideal or learning to be this ideal reading books like celebration of discipline this religious book that you know helps you have all of these disciplines in your life that can help you become you know a better person become more yourself um second type of jouissance i want to mention then um kind of often comes after this which is the jouissance of transgression, right? So sometimes you see in individuals, the jouissance they get from a community where they're trying to be whole and complete and pure, and there's a real pleasure in that and seeing that others aren't pure, etc. Sometimes that can give way to the second type of jouissance, which is that transgression and prohibition generate excessive desire. So you might see it with people who seem to always be trying to um say things and do things that their imagined past would hate right so they've left say christianity but now they're embracing a lifestyle where they're it feels like they're getting real enjoyment from trying to piss off this imagined other <laughs> from they're, they're getting genuine enjoyment from a transgressive behavior but this is also the transgression of drinking privately as again affairs uh, taking drugs and not telling anybody like that that enjoyment of having a transgressive secret is it creates a lot of enjoyment um, in fact one of the ways to get rid of that enjoyment is to, to get rid of the transgression right as soon as soon as it's revealed the affair is revealed for example many people almost immediately stop desiring each other when it becomes clear because the enjoyment of the of the affair was precisely in it's transgressive, secretive nature. Um, and then, so those are, I would say those are two kind of forms of jouissance that are very popular, but often very destructive. But you can see how impossibility is built into them. One is we can't be this whole and complete. So there's an impossibility built into that. And then the transgressive is you're only desiring what is um, you can't have. You know, either what you can't have or something that is always under threat of being taken away. So if you think of a child and you have a toy, you can make that toy magical by either giving it to another child and saying, you can't have that toy, right? That toy's for that child. And if you, you know, if the child wants that toy, 
very quickly, the impossibility can make that toy very sacred and exciting. Or you can threaten to take the toy away. You can go like, I'm taking this toy away from you. And the threat of the taking the toy away also uh, transforms the toy into something much more significant. And so it has a jouissance attached to it, not just the pleasure of playing with it, but a jouissance that is precisely arising out of its being drawn away. And um, that's why some people, in order to love, they have to be jealous. It's not that they're jealous because they love, it's they love because they're jealous, because they, they have to have the threat of their partner being taken away in order to create a, a jouissance, a painful pleasure that feels alive, right? Um, whereas some other people can only desire what they don't have, right? They can only desire their partners or their friend's partner, right? Or somebody else, somebody who is not available that creates an excessive jouissance and as soon as that person becomes available their desire dissipates and so finally then and then i'll open it up um and, and by the way that what i'm trying to do here is more give you a feel for jouissance to try to see if you can identify it in your own life it's probably better just to, to kind of have a feel for it than necessarily a precise definition the third type of jouissance is very much connected with what we do <clears throat> in parotheology and it's the jouissance of what's called non-relationship and it's, it's another type of impossibility but it's it's an excessive pleasure you get precisely from not having it's not from wholeness and completeness that impossible journey and it's not from having to transgress and put yourself against something and always define yourself in opposition to something but it's a type of jouissance in which you directly embrace struggle, you directly embrace a type of um, inherent sacrifice, and you find a kind of enjoyment in what you do not have. And a lot of, you know, the paratheological journey is about going, we're not trying to get rid of jouissance, but there's the jouissance of wholeness that causes all sorts of problems. There's the jouissance of transgression that also causes all sorts of problems because you always have to define yourself against something which means you technically need what you define yourself against but the jouissance of non-relationship is basically the pleasure that you get from never knowing for me never being able to describe what parotheology is right the non-relationship with parotheology that every time i try to explain it i miss it and i go like damn i could do that better and try and think of a better course and better lectures and better seminars. So it's a constant failure, but the failure is generative because every time I feel a body of work begins to grow and it begins to get more interesting and hopefully more sophisticated and then there's problems arise and then conversations occur. So something productive is occurring, but it's precisely the impossibility of naming it where I get the enjoyment. It's the enjoyment is not like, oh, one day I'll be able to sit by the fire having to find it, and then I'll be happy. It's kind of like, no, the constant failure is where the jouissance rests and where the jouissance is. <clears throat> so just to conclude, reality pr principle and pleasure principle, they're weirdly not at one. They kind of rub up against each other and create a surplus, a surplus enjoyment of something impossible. Something that we think, ah, oh, there's something that is, is ungraspable that actually gets our pleasure going. It can be connected to wholeness, the desire for to be perfect, the desire to get rid of the lack. It can be connected to transgression, the desire to always piss people off, always fight our imagined uh, other who's in ourselves. Or there's a type of impossibility that's woven into our desire as such that we can directly embrace. Okay, with that, I want to open it up. So does anybody want to start us off uh, with a question or comment? Uh, could you speak a little bit on Joyce and the death drive? Yes, absolutely. Like, so they're intimately connected um, in that. Um, so the, the whole point of instinct is instinct, and you've probably heard me say this before, but instinct is basically three things, which is it's discrete, connected to say mating or, or um, shelter or food, right? So there's instincts are very almost hardwired. Secondly, instincts can be satisfied when the, when the, um, the bird makes the nest, 
<clears throat> the bird sleeps in the nest, right? And thirdly, it's in the service of life. The idea of instincts is it you don't die from something external, but rather from the internal degeneration of your body. Drive is like instinct, right? And it comes from instinct, but it's perverted instinct. So a drive can be for anything. It can be for, but it's not really for mating. It'll be for sex, which is slightly different. It's not really for shelter. It'll be for shelter, but you'll want a bigger house, two houses, five houses, want to always continue to move houses. <laughs> um, it can be for food, but it will be for particular types of food or not eating food or eating too much food. And then it can also be for stamp collecting. It can be for anything, drinking. Drive is feels like an instinct, but it's derailed. Secondly, instinct uh, or a drive um, can't be fulfilled. It, it, it revolves around. It keeps moving around. It kind of like it's uh, insatiable. And then thirdly, of course, it can lead to destructive behaviors. So that's drive. And it's connected with jouissance because jouissance is precisely that the, the name for that type of experience that we experience and drive it is precisely the gambler who just gambles and gambles the money they don't have the alcoholic who drinks and drinks and drinks and doesn't have it's the exquisite pleasure it's the painful pleasure that that gambler feels um, more in losing than in winning so does that does that see the connection there between drive and jouissance for you yeah i think so um Okay, yeah. well, that was Kev asking because Kev, you 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 might have a better answer to this because you've got you know your you know your psychoanalysis very well. How would you describe it? Um, I'm not sure. I'll have to mull it over for a sec. Yeah, no, it's just because you on uh, the on Saturday there you were like you were, you were <laughs> killing up with the psychoanalytic yeah. insights. I, I was very impressed. <laughs> I I think it's um maybe that the death drive is. Um, well, the jouissance is when the object, the thing that you desire is covered over with fantasy. And then the jouissance, the pain of it is when you realize that, the fan, that this is not it, that that fantasy, the thing that you were fantasizing about, that it had fantasy on top of it. Mm -hmm. And I, the connection to, I'm, I'm not sure how I'm going to put that to the connection to death drive, though. Yeah. But I know that's that's a big part of how Lacan formulated it. Yes, yes. And Lacan kind of like developed his notion of jouissance over kind of a uh, over the, over his lifetime, and like his final formulation is really the non-relationship I was mentioning there, that non-rapport. Um, but uh, yeah, there's this impossibility. But the funny thing is, when you're talking about yes, the impossibility, the the pain of when you actually get the thing. But it's so intertwined because it's that suffering that you know that it, the pain and the pleasure are so intimately intertwined. It's when life and death, it's like literally it's they're they're so interconnected. That's that's kind of the really the experience of jouissance in my mind. Can I quickly uh, rename the three type, types of jouissance and see if you kind of agree with it? The the enjoyment of the enjoyment of wholeness is that what Lacan would term well jouissance in French can also mean like orgasm mm -hmm. uh, is that that that'd be like the male orgasm that you're searching for you're searching for wholeness but in doing so it's almost like a masturbatory thing that your partner just becomes an object or a prop that that is facilitating your wholeness while the jouissance of transgression is the the orgasm of the sadist that they need some sort of pain involved or they need to hurt the other in some way in order to get there in order to get off and while the pyrotheology the what jouissance of non-relate non-relation that's the female orgasm Yes. where they have to relate to the other as a subject in order to get off. So the male wants, has the object relation and the female orgasm, the subject relation. Um, and then with Todd McGowan, he often talks about, like, I hear him discussing why is the right so much better at the left at motivating enjoyment? And that's 
it seems like the he's saying that the right's better because it it's w willing to just accept the male male or sadist enjoyment where they're just going to piss other people off and enjoy piss, enjoy pissing other people off but then the left is trying to do the non-relational one where it's it how do you relate to somebody as a sub subject when that person's only interested in relating to you as an object is kind of the the issue that you get into there yes that's but, all so right. male orgasm female orgasm and uh you saw some sadist yeah yeah, no, that's very well put. That's very well said. And for everybody else who, you know, not as interested in Lacan or whatever, just he, Lacan makes this interesting distinction between a masculine and a feminine jouissance that that is kind of like, you know, like in truth, it's there's one jouissance manifesting itself in different ways. But yes, he uses this masculine feminine kind of nature, almost the masculine enjoyment is this um, enjoyment of wholeness and enjoyment of kind of completeness. The feminine enjoyment for Lacan is this is this kind of enjoyment of of the lack and 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 whatnot. And I like what you you talked about the perverse orgasm in the middle there, which is a need for transgression because that's what the perverse subject needs to set up the law in order to transgress or or to obey the law. But anyway, that's what, so yeah, that no, was very well said. Yeah, uh, one other the the female joissance here, Lacan also refers that to the joissance of the mystic as mm -hmm. well. So it's not, so that the male has access to it. It's like, it's almost like a mystical experience. Yes, absolutely. Very well said. Which will interest uh, at least two people in here, I see, yeah. uh, Angus and Chris. <laughs> um, yeah, and also I was gonna say that the female orgasm will interest Angus and Chris, so like, <laughs> <laughs> or you meant mysticism <laughs> um yeah that's what was i going to say about that um i was very well put um okay i forget what i was going to say um so anybody else want to jump in on that or something else yeah uh, i have a question oh, oh, oh before you jump in i'll just say what i, I remember what i was going to say which is funny so todd I love Todd. Todd's great. Todd is right in the sense of I think that the left is trying to do a different type of enjoyment. But the truth is, in reality, the, what, the people who are called the left, I think, are caught up in transgressive enjoyment. So it's like, it's almost like if you, I think you have to abstract. So the abstract and go, yes, the, the proper leftist mode of enjoyment is the non-rapport whether we're seeing that in reality in terms of what's called the left i'm less convinced than taught that's what i was going to say but sorry i jump in is that mary beth or who was gonna who was sarah gonna... me sarah sorry sarah go for it did you say just now that the, the left is act or that those who call themselves the left are doing what kind what did you just say you i was gonna say transgressive we saw okay, yeah um, I see a lot of stuff like, and it, by the way, it's because there's no pure movement. That's why every time people want to kind of obviously name what movement is right, you're going, to go, oh, it's always going to be messy. And Todd admits that. But I, I do see a lot of, um, of jouissance that comes from this desire for transgression uh, to, to try to offend or define oneself against the other that's seen in a lot of the popular movements but i'm anyway, sorry sarah go ahead yeah um well first of all i i just love all of this and it makes so much sense of of my work as an artist why i often have such a hard time finishing things because i know the moment i put it out there it will just fail and yeah. i recently worked on something for like months and then at the last moment accidentally destroyed it as a way of not being and i was like why did i do that because it was like a yeah anyway so that was great yeah. <laughs> I was like, but how do you I don't know if I'm using the word perverse right but is there a way that you can like enjoy not having it that's non-productive like I thought of that as more perverse like the enjoyment of like like not eating or not having things versus this kind of more productive way of not having it that you're talking about so I, I see like a, a way that you could kind of think that you're getting into this, like the enjoyment of not having and but not be productive. Yes, yes. Um, 
I think you're there. Do you want to give me a, can you say that in a different way? Because I, I agree with what you're saying, but I'm not sure. Maybe, or maybe it's more of a comment than a question. Um, I think or... it's a question. Like, how do you, like, I mean, it's more like that's been my experience where, like, when I first started getting into this stuff, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I would kind of see myself as like enjoying what I don't have, but it's not productive. Mm -hmm. And then I started realizing, like, I don't think that's what you were talking about. Like, you actually have to act. To, and like have those actions be failures like it's in this like you have to like do something that's a failure not not do something and enjoy yes. the not doing it yes but I don't know what that other thing is called or if you could describe that in any way because yeah like I, what you're talking about you know reminds me of you know Paul Tillich and the ultimate concern or Derrida and justice where both of them are in a similar way and you've I think you were doing that book study as well but both of them in their own way are saying that you know, you commit yourself, say, to, to, to beauty, but you continue to fail at achieving beauty in your art. If you think you have achieved it, that's idolatry. That's kind of like, you know, that's a whole set of problems. But it's kind of like a, a constant failure that is driven by, in a way, being within beauty, not being able to articulate it. So for Derrida, the law and justice, you know, the law never is just. But, but, but you continue to try to make the, the law better because you're inspired by justice. So that's what, that's what I think of the jouissance of action of, of the left, maybe, is, is, is that constant um, failure. But yes, that is, that is motivated by, um, you know, but that is a motivated failure, a productive yeah, I like, failure. I like that better than just like enjoying what you don't have because that doesn't have to be productive where failure is like you try something and you try something again and you try something again, where I think there's just like the slight difference that yeah. in articulation that one, one, it has to be a productive kind of not getting it. Yeah. Anyone else want to jump in? If you, I have a thought or question. Can you hear me? It. Oh yeah, I can hear you loud and clear. Good to good. see you. Hey, yeah, uh, good to see you. You know, a reference point as you wouldn't be surprised, would be uh, Lewis's sense of joy, his concept of joy. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you might riff on where there's some overlap and where there's some distinction. And I should have prefaced by saying this is super helpful. I've been trying to enter into Trezance for a while, and this has really helped me do that. So thanks. Thank you. Yeah, no, th this, is, this, this is one of the things that I really like. Lewis, um, he helped me see... Now, not that Lewis would necessarily go with any of this stuff, but for, for Lewis, joy is precisely a pleasure of not having. So obviously, as you know, he associates it with an aroma of heaven, but it's it's precisely not having heaven. It's precisely in the, the lack of it, but in a not a melancholic, a kind of a, a very, I mean, it's a type of jouissance because it's a pleasurable suffering of, of a world that you do not have and yet somehow calls you forth. And the reason why I like this is I do make a direct connection between jouissance, enjoyment, and the theological concept of joy. That joy is a theological term. It's like, it, it, you know, technically, a, tr a, a true religion, a spirituality should not offer you happiness, right? The category of fools, really. It should offer you joy. Happiness is a type of momentary, you know, you get something that you really like and whatever. But joy is this sustained... Um, not having that drives you that inspires you and yes yeah, so interestingly even though lewis is quite a conservative orthodox kind of guy actually like his concept of joy um really fits with jouissance he's really talking about a form of jouissance um and so yeah that that's the connection i make between that's what and in psychoanalysis it's pleasure and enjoyment pleasure is the type of momentary enjoyment of a holiday right that's pleasurable but enjoyment is the waiting for the holiday the anticipation of the holiday and and then so and of course enjoyment joy is precisely the person who lives in between heaven and earth um but the more radical radicalizing lewis then is you you don't say in one day i'll get there you almost say no to be human is to live between the the angels and the beasts does that make sense? Do you want to come back on that? Yeah, I think what I hear you saying in that is that they're, it's, it, they're, not, they're certainly not uh, interchangeable terms. 
or ways of talking about the same thing that categorically they're kind of different and that the jouissance gets at something more specific about pleasure and joy and perhaps there's even a corporality to it that is embedded that isn't necessarily the case in a theological concept of joy which is more existential yeah well you know and you've probably heard me talk about you know that as a favorite of mine the short story called blindness that lewis wrote where the protagonist he's born blind he gets his sight back and he's obsessed with light and his wife keeps saying i don't know what you mean what you, you know there's the light and he keeps pointing at things but he says oh so is, what is the lamp the light is the is the sun the light but no that's where the light emanates from and of course on the other side he meets a painter who literally says i'm painting light i can see it and the story if you know is he, he, he believes the painter and steps off a cliff into the light and dies. <laughs> so for C.S. Lewis, it's a very interesting story because he precisely says that, but that, that the, the, what the man born blind, mis his problem was that he wanted to get rid of the joy of not having the light, the joy of the search. He, he kind of gave that up for having and having created death the having ended up killing him so i think there is in c.s lewis this radical act of, of basically where lewis would want to say that god is precisely nowhere and everywhere i mean lewis's favorite example of god was good just like shakespeare is nowhere in hamlet but everywhere in hamlet so God is nowhere in the universe and yet everywhere in the universe. God is in the universe like Hamlet or like Shakespeare is in the play Hamlet. And I think that's Lewis's attempt to say that there is a type of not having that is central to religion that, and that's joy. Got it. Okay. This is good. Thank you. Could somebody say, it's been a while since I've read C.S. Lewis, he still would have thought though that eventually you do get heaven and that's even better than the joy correct would that be what he would have said yes absolutely i i am um, so my analogy for lewis is right so there's a story of a guy gets on a bus and um oh what's the story he says um oh i can't remember that basically the story is a guy gets on the bus and says i'm going to tipperary and the guy says oh that's easy um uh, all you have to do is stay on the bus and get off the stop before I get off, right? So the idea is like, how do you do that? You know, you could, um, it's like C.S. Lewis, I go like, I want to get off the stop before C.S. Lewis gets off. So, <laughs> so you got to radicalize Lewis, but you're exactly right. Lewis would ultimately uh, go one stop further than I would want to. So I have a question then uh, coming out of that. And you're, you spoke of, I think it's the parable of your buddy, Philip, who dreams of entering the gates of heaven. And he gets halfway in. And then he thinks about his buddies who are Buddhist and addicted on the street, whatever. And he thinks of Christ and he thinks, where would Christ be? And he kind of turns around and says, well, if they can't come with me, then maybe I'll stay out here. Is that a, in one dimension, kind of a, a sense of staying in the jouissance and staying in the lack? I think 100%. I absolutely, there was a beautiful line by Mother Teresa who said, if they make me a saint, I shall be a saint of darkness. You will not find me in heaven. I will be outside guiding the way. Um, and it's similar to what Phil was doing in that parable that there's, and I think in one sense that Mother Teresa knew that the jouissance, the enjoyment, it was precisely not to be in heaven, but to be between and to, and, and to guide the way, almost like selfishly, of course, that's where the enjoyment is. Do you want to be playing the harp or do you want to be <laughs> on this side? So yeah, I think that is, and, and so the key, both for Mother Teresa and Phil Harrison there is, is religion, and, and the difference between me and C.S. Lewis in the last example is, is religion the overcoming and the, the getting, or is religion the helping us inhabit the space? And I would call the, the latter religionless Christianity. So I think religion does kind of say, get into heaven and that's going to be great religionless christianity somehow says no religion is at its purest is, is religionless it's precisely occupying the gap um i have 
Oh, sorry. I have the Bible app downloaded on my phone and it gives me a verse of the day. And the verse for today is Hosea 6, 8, which is God saying, I desire your chested, your loving kindness, your mercy, not your sacrifices. And I think that that's speaking to, to this uh, religious, religionless Christianity that we need a way of being in the world. We don't need a list of like things we have to do. Very good. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. So Pete, can I take this back down to kind of my level? Oh, yeah. um, so by the way, Hiroshi, do you have your hand up because you want to say something after Kate? I, after. Oh, great. That's okay, because you're being very nice and putting your hand up. And I oh, don't in that hands. case, please, no, if you're being polite and good, then please go for it and I'll bring okay. it back down to okay. ridiculous levels after. <laughs> I'm, I'm so delighted that um, that you introduced me to Bruce Fink right before um, Atheism for Lent happened. And um, because my current experience of jouissance is, is, is how it really helps me to explain all of my feeling bad skills I've been really good at since language. And um, for instance, like my critical mind, that, that critical superego saying, Hero, hero, you suck more than anyone's ever sucked before, you know, and follows me around, not as a voice, but as a kind of an experience of reality. And I'm gonna put up these two quotes by Fink um, that um, where um, I love that, that, that Fink says that uh, the superego takes pleasure in criticizing the ego, not simply reminding the ego of the law, but getting off on, berating the ego for its failure to execute the law and enjoying a kind of vicious enunciation of the law. And, that, and this, the fact that it's badgering me and that it's, it's berating me and bludgeoning me and it's taking pleasure in doing that. And the, the, the whole idea of the, uh, the, the other footnote that I put in there about um, Freud noting that, um, that panic attacks and anxieties is, appears so orgasmic. And it appears to me later on in another spot, Fink says that um, really strong affect, really strong emotion enjoys feeling itself. So when I feel moments of rage that I want to disavow, it's also like something that's enjoying continuing it or, or resentment or, 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 or even shame enjoys feeling shame. And when I think about all those parts of myself that enjoy suffering that I don't want to enjoy, um, it helps me to have it along as a writer in my like coming along with me I can't I can't get rid of it but I can certainly have it come along and not let it drive the bus like that children's book um don't let the pigeon drive the bus I, I, I wonder if, if anything that I've just now said would be helpful to give you something to reflect on oh no what you said was beautiful I'm just nodding my head in agreement I think you said it beautifully absolutely beautifully um I mean it's so much of um uh first thing once said uh, he said it so succinctly, he said, you know, often we enjoy, but we do not enjoy our enjoyment. And I always thought that was a very profound sense of going like, often there's a, a certain enjoyment in me for things that I think I'm suffering, but there is something, as you mentioned, like the almost orgasmic, something that enlivening, but I'm not enjoying my enjoyment. I'm kind of not in touch with that. And, and how do I start to be sensitive to, to what I'm getting out of? that experience um but yeah what, what the jouissance is uh um and i remember once in my own therapy saying that i was in a relationship and i said it was like a heroin relationship i said i'm addicted to the highs and one of the few things that my analyst said was well what if you're addicted to the lows it's like oh and i was like bah, that was one of those moments that just hit me and it completely changed my entire way of seeing that relationship <laughs> yeah Thank you. Kate, do you want to jump in then? Take us from the sublime to the ridiculous, you were saying? <laughs> Usually, yes. So one of the things that I think Shreesance is so difficult to grasp hold of, as you said at the start, is that it, it's the definition changes. So just when you think you've kind of got a handle on it, you see it in a different context and it just changes completely. Mm. So it goes from, um, like you were saying, enjoying the you get it right and everybody else hurts it wrong to then enjoying you getting it wrong and doing it wrong deliberately and it just feels like it's like the opposite um but i was just wondering at the very start you mentioned about how it's pleasure that's non-utilitarian and it's excessive and that it um you mentioned about things that are bad for you um but i was wondering like non-utilitarian and excessive 
but not necessarily bad. Could that be something like having a cup of tea in the morning, watching a sunrise? Because it's you could just have water, so it's not like utilitarian and basic and functioning, but it is excessive in that it's more than it's not um, instinctive because it's not what you need to survive. That's very good because, yeah, because you're drawing out how one of the things about being human is that we don't just eat or drink. We're never completely utilitarian, even when we're at our most utilitarian. Um, we're not. That's very true. So the, everything is overwritten by, by, by maybe we saw some by, by symbolic reality. And so are you, so basically are you asking, yeah, is that, is that a sense of like, um, a type of drive over instinct, a type of jouissance. Because if you're saying that, I think you're right. Um, that, you know, none of us just eat. Like, none of us just eat for survival. That's it. Like, even that you eat at certain times and you eat with people and certain foods have symbolic value. Like, there is no, as it told McGowan says in Capitalism and Desire, you never eat the apple. You never just eat an apple. The apple has other signification whether it's healthy apple a day keeps the doctor away or whether it's connected to, to your past or whatever there's all a is never a an apple is never just an apple it's always overwritten is that what you're referring to yeah i was flailing wildly and kind of going i just don't get it because it the definition seems to be contradictory in every way that you can find some other way to make it fit so if you can make it fit positive things like having a cup of tea, you can make it fit alcohol, you can make it fit not drinking alcohol because you're being good, um, enjoying it on your own. So it yeah. just seems like you can find a way to make resource fit anything. Okay, yes. And I'll say it like this. This is something Lacan said, which is very, very insightful, I think, where... He talked about he connected jouissance, he called it at one stage surplus enjoyment. And he was connecting this to the idea of in Marx of surplus value, right? So workers create a product, but there's always more value. And so that's what's sold. So the person who the capitalist, you know, takes the, the, the table that's made. And the reason why they sell it is because there's surplus value. They would never sell it if it, if there was no surplus value. There'd be no enjoyment, right? There'd be no point setting up a business if you sold everything at exactly the value that it was made at. And so Lacan is saying that jouissance is a type of surplus enjoyment, and that's in everything. That's the so this is where you're right. It's kind of there is something always more than just eating the apple, more than just having even a glass of water watching the sunset. There's there's always a surplus to pure utilitarian or animalistic or non-symbolic and it's that surplus that is of interest that's that surplus and all kind of almost is what makes us human and it's so it is everywhere you're kind of right it's like you can't get rid of it because just like the capitalist if, if you had a system where there was no surplus value you wouldn't have any businesses because in the same way with no surplus enjoyment you wouldn't have human life um so yeah but yes so so i don't know if that being like that's that's his definition and what do you think of that definition yeah yeah yeah, I yeah. I mean, it's just i mean that, that six years trying to work it out yeah i mean that's just what makes us not animals for lacan i mean it's almost like um it's in a, in a way an animal can eat and 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 without it having symbolic if an animal doesn't have language have a symbolic frame then you know it's instinct and instinct is kind of non-symbolic way of engaging with reality but as soon as you become human it's like even even if we just drank water and ate bread there's a symbolic value to that we're, we're making a point right we're, we're not just doing it we're doing it because we want to be aesthetic or we want to make a point so it's like at a, but so at a very basic level I think that's just a way of understanding what it means to be symbolic is like oh nothing is ever exactly what it is everything has a little bit of wiggle room in it and that's what it is to be human um but then jouissance 
is a particular type of impossibility. It's a particular type of, of surplus pleasure um, that comes from, from, precisely from what you're talking about, precisely from the fact that, that just like language, sorry, I'll waffle one, one word, it's just like a dictionary is just one word that points to other words that point to other words. You never get out of the, the language, you never get out of the words, but as you put all of those signifiers together, it creates meaning. It's like that, it's like we never get to the apple. We never get to some non-symbolic thing, um, but it's that impossibility and it's that flow. Metonymy is, Lacan calls it, that, that, that makes us desiring creatures. Um, but then it only becomes problematic whenever it's um, an affair we're having that destroys our relationship or an alcohol addiction or a gambling addiction. That's when, that's when, so it's almost like, yeah, so psychoanalysis doesn't care about the having a cup of tea while watching a sunset because that's, you're not, you know, in damage, but it does care if you start engaging with something that is, that is fundamentally tearing you apart. Pete, when you just said the thing about um, kind of defining like how it's symbolic, how those actions are symbolic, and you were sort of saying, I think connecting it to the fact of, even if you're just eating bread and water, you're somehow doing that to, to say something. Is it also tied to the fact that even bread and water could somehow be, they could mean something else, like they could stand in for a lost object or something? Is that also tied to the symbolic or is that kind of a different idea in that they're kind of uh, the stand-ins for this, uh, this lost object? Is that still connected to the language? Because that's kind of how I've always understood it, but I might just be not grasping it and like that they're, uh, they're being used in like a communicative way, in a language way. I've always thought of it like the same way that a word has a meaning. When you have um, any object that you desire, you're desiring it for what it, not for what it is, but for what it means, meaning that it means something else. Are, are those all connected or am I kind of uh, not quite there? Yeah, no, what you're, what you're saying sounds bang on. Um, if you're saying like, yeah, that, that Hegel once said, the birth of the word is the death of the world, which is kind of like, yeah, where once we become speaking beings, we are caught within the symbolic. And so everything has symbolic overlay. So if, if that's what you're saying, yeah, that's, that's the symbolic, even if it's imaginary, even if you're thinking that something's going to bring wholeness, that's the level of the imaginary, that it's still caught within the symbolic. So I think I'm just agreeing with what you're saying, but are I, you? I, I think you're... so kind of, yeah, yeah I, I guess maybe like if I'm drinking this coffee, it, you were kind of saying the example would be that I wanted people to see me as a certain kind of coffee drinker, for example. Yeah. Would it, could it also be though, that to me, the coffee can't be just coffee, that it has to kind of have this, uh, this attachment of this lost object to it. So it's kind of like a word and that the word isn't just these letters, it has this this meaning underneath that attached to it. Are, are, those, are those both how it is symbolic? I think so, yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense. But even like, you know, I, I feel this is, even with, this is coffee and concepts, I was thinking I should get, grab a coffee. Um, it's coffee, and, but also there's a kind of symbolic value even going like, I'm wide awake or yeah, um, you know, whatever it is that, and that's all symbolic. Yeah, that, that just feels like it's all in the symbolic register. And of course, it's, as you know, it's like, it doesn't mean we're, constantly thinking that kind of stuff it just means that we're we don't have unmediated access to the world it's mediated through language but i hope i'm getting you right but I, the way you're talking absolutely oh by the way hannah you got your hand up very good do you want to jump in yeah i was just going to ask how does a libunal investment fit in with resonance because i remember we learned about it in capitalism desire and it was like you take enjoyment from things where people were not. It was like we had, you had the iPhone and you had enjoyment because you knew people suffered making it. Yeah. I think that's what we learned. So I wasn't sure how that fit in with all of this. If that is it, if I'm remembering it correctly. Yes, that's very true. Um, like, yeah, what Todd McGowan was talking about there is, well, it's basically that sacrifice has to be woven into reality in some way. And so, one of the ways we can enjoy something is precisely because of the sacrifices within it. So for Todd McGowan, the, the issue is not to get to a world without sacrifice, but to get to a world where 
the sacrifice is um, affirms and productive. So like, so sacrifices everywhere in our contemporary society. Yeah, the iPhone's a great example. There's sacrifices everywhere. But the answer is not to get rid of sacrifice because then you would get rid of jouissance. Um, the, the point is almost like, how can we all share in sacrifice? How can we all benefit from the sacrifice? How can, how can sacrifice work in a much more equitable way? Um, because you take away sacrifice, you take away jouissance. Is that what's your your commenting on, or? Yeah, and uh, I guess then why did you use the word libido investment, or what does that mean? Is that different? Libido investment. Libido investment. Am I saying it right? Someone oh, can libidinal? say. Libido. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Libido investment. Yeah. That, that's so. Libido investment. Yeah. Is just kind of our investment energetically uh, with an object. And yes, if we if sacrifice isn't in that, I actually was. I remember talking to Pete Holmes about this a while. It was a year or two ago. But I said to him because he we were talking about veganism because he's a vegan. But I was like, um, he was talking about how veganism is less cruel, and I was saying, but that's precisely why you know I eat meat. It's the cruelty, you know. It's like, it's like you know, I, and he kind of was he was laughing about it because I think he was thinking about creating a joke like this, which is actually you know if you say that the, the great thing about veganism is how it lacks cruelty you might actually be taking the enjoyment out of it right but that was kind of like a a way of saying that weirdly it's precisely not living in a wealthy way that can be good but it can be looking at homeless people and weirdly getting a pleasure out of the fact that they're suffering allows you to libidinally invest have more energy in what you enjoy so if you have for example a hollywood star who has everything he or she will maybe want to uh fantasize that they might lose their job they might not get the next part they might not have enough money to pay for everything they have like they to be libidinally invested in what they have they have to have some sort of sacrifice or some threat of being taken away something like that in order for us to connect so that's just what libidinal investment is in is that for us to be invested in the iphone there actually has to be sacrifice whether it's the sacrifice of our money it costs loads of money the sacrifice that to make it whatever sacrifice has to be woven in or else i won't be libidinally invested oh. i think that's how i read that okay that sounds good thanks <laughs> You guys, by the way, this has been really fun because when I started this, most of the people who engaged in my work were new to it. And now years in, there's a lot of you know this stuff better than I do. So please jump in whenever you think you've got a, you know, a better way of saying something or you think I might be wrong because it's there's an enjoyment. I get an enjoyment of being the one who knows more, but actually now there's an enjoyment of being not the one who knows more, the one who kind of can be corrected. So that's that's what keeps me libidinally invested. Um, we've got maybe a few more minutes. I don't want to take too much more time, but anybody else want to jump in, especially anybody who hasn't talked? Or anybody who I was going to, I was going to mention um, the Kierkegaard, when he speaks of the, you know, the love and the gallows, like, would you have, would you give up uh, your life to have sex? Um, and then I know that, that was that's, pro or was that Kant? Yeah. Uh, I know that that's uh, your making love uh, film is, yeah. that's probably the impetus for that. And I know also know that um, Lacan speaks a lot about that tale from Kant. Uh, in his description of joyousness, yes. Could you maybe speak to making love in terms of joyousness? Yes, hundred percent. And so that short film, Making Love, which is based on a script that I wrote for um, a feature-length uh, film, uh, it's all about a couple. Um, so very quickly, a couple who have never been able to be together. She's married. He, the guy she's married to, is a very powerful guy, um, cr criminal, and this playwright comes back to the city to see if he can win over the woman. And the husband says to him, you can go in and you can spend the night with her. But after that, you're on a plane and you're out of the city. You never come back. And so in the film the, the, and in the short, they have a small amount of time where they're together with the husband is the prohibition. Who's, they've only got a certain amount of time. If he doesn't leave, he's dead. 
And then they realize that actually the husband's lying. He doesn't care. He's just doing this to play with them. He's not out there. Nobody's waiting for them. They could run away if they want. And they realize that, of course, well, they could have always run away. They could have always been together. The prohibition of the husband was really a prohibition they needed in order to keep their desire alive. So then they realize that. And then the point of the end of the film is that they realize that they have to internally generate the prohibition. So it is basically two types of jouissance, the jouissance of impossibility and transgression, and the couple has to find a way to get to another type of jouissance where the impossibility of the relationship is internal to it, not external to it. Um, and actually, we're making a documentary called A Guide to Making Love. I'm going to be, we're filming it on May, where we're going to have the short film as part of that. So yes, that, that making love and the, the reason why we called it making love is because the husband makes love. The husband is the one who's making love, not the man and the woman, because he's generating this prohibition that makes the love happen between the playwright and the woman. And um, they have to, in a, in a way, realize that the obstacle is within them, not external to them. So the documentary, A Guide to Making Love, is, is, a, is a documentary about how do we have a type of internal impossibility that generates pleasure so can you do that in a relationship by finding something that either you are trying to then achieve together that is seemingly impossible um, or like switch desire from being together to then desiring something together but but separate yeah, you know, Shizek uses that example. That's very good. Shizek uses the example of some revolutionaries during in Soviet era, I think, where the whole point was a couple who were deeply in love, but they were more committed to a, a cause. But weirdly, the commitment to this cause is exactly what created such a powerful unity of the relationship. Um, I, I would say there's a number of ways to do it. And that's the great thing about, I think, psychoanalysis is, is it's not moralistic in the sense of like going like, you know, there's one. But the, the way you described it is potentially one of one of the healthy ways, which is a couple who have a shared vision and a shared um, obstacle could potentially be the way to keep jouissance in, in, alive in, in the relationship. Yeah. Anybody else, any thoughts, jump in before we finish up? I had one thought. Um, as a painter, uh, the, the concept really reminds me about how I relate with the blank canvas. Um, and there, there's all of the kind of the superego that says all of the things that I should be and should be able to produce and what it will be in the end and, and um, you know, like the, the primary question that you get as an artist is how do you know when you're finished or, 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 or what medium do you use? Um, <laughs> uh, but I think there's this really interesting space that's carved out by that relationship in with the blank canvas of I don't know. And, and there's all this pressure that's also anticipation um, and, and kind of this uh, yeah, the strange pleasure of uh, of work that's also toil. Like, so, so I think I think it really, um, at least for me, it, it, it exemplifies the 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 end of that that kind of perfect uh, object, as well as the beginning of my journey with it. You know, so, like, I, I I make I I'm putting marks on the thing that's actually keeping it from its perfection, but in that I'm building something new. Um, so yeah. yeah was it van gogh and the uh, lilies that drew hundreds of paintings of lilies and uh it's like the, the failure was so generative um the, of, of creating more and more <laughs> all right well here then is, oh, go ahead. So he is you had spoken of the jouissance of wholeness can then leads to the jouissance of transgression do you have, do you see getting to the jouissance of non-relation or non-rapport is, is it, is it a step thing? Like you, you need to go through wholeness and transgression in order to finally get to non-rapport or like I'm, I'm thinking in terms of a transformance art, if, um, 
if you were to try to build in a practice to help somebody get to that point, um, what might be the step? Yeah, I, I do. I do tend to think in that that each form of jouissance falls into a contradiction that leads to a new form that falls into a contradiction that leads to a new form. So to a certain extent, I think we 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 fall through, we collapse through these forms until we get to the non-rapport. Um, and sometimes we may need a very artificial prosthetic, like a prosthetic leg. We need a we need we need rituals and forms that kind of help us live within that because those you know we didn't get that when we were young or whatever so yeah I, I used to always when I was doing especially New York's icon try to create most gatherings that literally walk people through something so you start with you would start with the the jouissance of wholeness and completeness um I remember once we did a gathering where we kind of very subtly had a as people doing testimony of how religion transformed them and as the evening went on these testimonies became more and more about wholeness and completeness and very gradually got to the point where it started to feel sickly and scapegoaty and and then at that point we brought out champagne and chocolate cake for the eucharist and somebody picked up the chocolate cake and stuffed it into their mouth and then drank the champagne. So it spilled over and then walked around people and said, this is the body of Christ given for you. And try, try to get people to eat the chocolate cake and drink the champagne. It was very awkward because, you know, it's like, uh, you know, they're being given the champagne and chocolate cake and yet you're feeling very awkward about it. And this person's covered in chocolate cake and champagne. But the, the idea was to try to very subtly inhabit the wholeness and completeness jouissance to such an extent that then it kind of like collapsed in some sort of way. So I always, I always like to do that in transformance art is to inhabit something that, that we're critiquing so much that it kind of collapses into something else. Um, but then is that what you were asking or do you want to jump back on that? Uh, yeah. So then what would the step be to then get it more towards the uh, jouissance of non-rapport? Oh yeah, so at the end of that gathering, interestingly, if I guess it's a long time ago, but then after the champagne and chocolate cake, then there were some readings and some music that were really connected with the enjoyment of a kind of Christianity of, I mean, there's one guy who was very into liberation theology. So he did a reading from, I don't know who it was, Guterres or somebody, he did some reading of that. And I think Padraig did a poem or a song about the struggle of faith. And the, but it was so what happened at the end of that gathering was you after the champagne and chocolate cake where it just felt that the whole thing kind of collapsed and the music in the background was all happy and very kind of like sickly very kitsch at the end of the gathering you were left with a type of enjoyment of the darkness an enjoyment of going no hold on there's a there's a feeling of of struggle that is that is after this so that that in a liturgical artist say transformance art way was an attempt to articulate what we're talking about here the movement where the people involved in that gathering some of them hopefully felt the sickliness of the first half to the point of the champion chocolate cake and if that was effective then they felt actually the enjoyment of uh an apophatic a more apophatic or a more kind of negative type of religious experience articulated by the beautiful poetry of Padraig and the readings from this liberation theologian. So that would be a very practical sense of, of how maybe it would look in one in one gathering. Um, Thinking in terms of parenting, um, that it seems like with you have the jouissance of wholeness when the, your child is very young and then the teenage years, you're getting into the jouissance of transgression. Yeah. And it may just stay there unless the family has some way of moving into now we're friends, uh, yes. like we're a family of friends. Yes. Uh, and we treat each other as subjects. A hundred percent. Where the teenager realizes that the parents are divided and just and there's, you're not you're not rebelling against God, the undivided parents there like you as well. And yes, you get to the third stage where we're all divided subjects together is kind of like the healthy third stage of that. Are, Absolutely. Are you planting seeds throughout the whole the the whole 
performance? Are, are there being seeds planted uh, suggesting that that jouissance of non-rapport treating each other, coming together as subjects, that that, that is where we're going to? Or is it um, just in the fullness of it and then the collapsing under the weight that you eventually arrive there? Yeah, I, I try to, the way I do it, I don't know if this is the right way or not, is the way I did it with Icon NYC was each gathering ended pretty much with something of the the last form, <clears throat> but but yeah, but hidden right until the end sometimes. So you would have to go through the whole 45 minutes before you get to this last bit. But and also the, the entire year also had that structure. So the gatherings at the end of the year were more, were a greater amount of those were within the idea of this self-divided God, this, this non-rapport. So I had kind of like, it was almost like um, each, each small gathering, I tried to in some way have the journey because I didn't want to end a gathering without, without some hint of where it was going. Um, and then, but then over the course of the year, the hope was that that, that, that structure was, was reflected in the whole, the whole liturgical year itself. That's kind of how I, how I did it um, and how we did it. So we often, very often, we did play with parody and we did play with satire. We did play with trying to trick people. But, but you know, it was like, a, it's the structure of a joke with the punchline at the end. Um, yeah. And the atheism for Lent's a form of that. Atheism for Lent kind of tries to bring you through each form. So, and you inhabit it for a week and you inhabit, uh, you know, maybe classical atheism, you inhabit the more apophatic, the more existential, the more, you know, you, you inhabit each week. And then you, the, the hope is that as you inhabit each week, you see how it opens up to the next week. And it, you know, that it opens up. So atheism for Lent is, an, is, an, is, a, is a prolonged attempt to create this experience. Okay, well here, I don't wanna, you know, we could talk all day, but I know you've got other things to do, but just to sum up and very quickly is a, you know, if anything, I was kind of just exploring that idea of like, jouissance is part of life. This, ex, this excess is, is what makes life meaningful. And if we got rid of it, we potentially would get, we would be like brave new world. We would get rid of what makes us human, but it's also what's so destructive. It's also what can cause so many problems. And through this conversation, just kind of like talking about what does it mean to kind of, to have impossibility woven into our existence, to enjoy impossibility in some sort of way that's not destructive, but productive. And that's, I think, um, you know, a jouissance uh, experience at its best.